Welcome back to Not Alone, a podcast about faith and wellness. We're so glad you're listening. This week, we are releasing part two of our conversation with Greer Jones. Greer is a professional counselor and a friend of the pod who has lots of experience walking with others through substance abuse. If you haven't listened to part one yet, we highly encourage you to do that first before proceeding further. But nevertheless, here is part two of our conversation with Greer Jones. I think something we don't often talk about sobriety is that the very beginning is really painful um, because you were using the substance to avoid dealing with deeper pain a lot of times or feelings that were uncomfortable and you wanted to avoid. And for the first days, weeks, months, you're having to sit and deal with that pain and those feelings. And for a lot of people, if you don't have great support services in those moments, it is really hard to sit in that pain and discomfort uh, by yourself and long enough to kind of wait it out. Um, So there are lots of people that relapse, not because they don't long for sobriety or long for something different, uh, but not everybody has uh, the support resources Um, or knows where to find them to deal with uh, what sounds real clinical, to like sit in the suck that happens at the beginning. Hmm. Well, and And, your body feels bad and your brain feels bad. Like all the emotions come rushing back and then you feel physically ill. Like you don't feel well. And so it's like to have to deal with that convergence of the things that have been being pushed off oftentimes, and to have the physical ailment as well, it's just a really rough combination and time. Like it's hard. And Lindsay, kind of, as you were saying that, like, so people who aren't involved in the recovery community or who haven't worked in recovery at all, um, probably don't know that AA or 12 steps have like all these kind of cliche sayings that they hold on to. And so um, probably the most well-known is like this, it, you know, it's one day at a time. Um, but one of them is alcohol or, you know, fill in your drug of choice, but alcohol was never the problem. It was the solution. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, um, people, and I, I mean, I truly believe this and I think this is, it shapes the way that I function as a therapist, but people don't go out and get drunk because it feels good. Right. And just say like, Oh, alcohol is just the problem. Right. Because yeah, it feels good in the moment, but you know when it doesn't feel good uh, when you wake up because that or the next morning you wake up and your head hurts, you're throwing up, you have like bridges and uh, like, you know, a broken arm or you have like road rash because you ate it on, you know, in the middle of, the middle of the road, <laughs> walk into the next bar, you know, or you wake up in jail or you wake up and you don't know who you're with or where you're at, you know, like those moments aren't fun. Um, people aren't drinking to wake up and feel terrible. And so the reason that people are drinking or using, right, is to get to a place where I'm numbing out pain or I'm not thinking about the fact that I don't have 
a good relationship or a healthy relationship, or maybe I lost somebody and it's a, it's a, it's a way of avoiding having to cope with grief or, you know, whatever the, whatever the issue is, alcohol is simply the solution short term. It's never actually, it's never the, it's not the problem itself. It's just a surface level problem. It's easy to talk about. It's, it's easier to talk about alcohol being the problem versus unresolved conflict and familial relationships <laughs> because one is vulnerable and one's not. Mm-hmm. Well, that, that, I think that is spot on. And that's why I think this conversation is really important in this period of time, because I think in many ways I have experienced over the course of the pandemic, a lot of people who would have never ever envision themselves as dependent or abusive of alcohol and drugs find themselves today in a place where they're drinking every night and they have been for the past year and a half. And, and that's a place I'm really interested in talk. I don't know if we can pivot a little bit to talk about like, what do you do if you find yourself and you realize you, you're having, you're in that place after going through this traumatic event that was, you know, 18 months ago. What, what, what advice or, or help would you offer them? So I think, um, I think it kind of depends on what your comfort level is, which is really interesting because you have to consider the impacts of the pandemic on certain people or, you know, like on in different ways on people too, right? And so if I'm thinking about somebody who has been maybe drinking by themselves or in isolation um, because of quarantine, you know, because of quarantining for the past 18 months, I can't imagine saying to them, hey, uh, you're probably drinking because of uh, hating the fact that you've been isolated and social anxiety. You should go to a 12-step meeting um, full of people that you don't know and then become vulnerable and tell them that you have a problem. That, I mean, talk about like the most unappealing thing you could ever say to somebody, right? Like that's terrifying. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so, but for other people, right, if they're drinking during the pandemic as a way I'm going to say is like a way to maybe bond right because it's like virtual happy hours right and like I'm that's how I'm hanging out with my girls or maybe I have my close my close crew you know that we kind of did quarantine together and we all just drank because we didn't have to go to work the next day you know or like whatever that kind of maybe looked like that's going to be that's going to be different for somebody who's not drinking and isolating during a pandemic where an AA meeting or looking into that option, you know, like maybe more appealing. And mm-hmm. so I think, I think it really depends on the person on kind of what maybe they feel most comfortable with, but you know, the first step can also always be therapy. That's a one-on-one mm-hmm. situation. Um, maybe one of the good things that has come out of the pandemic for mental health has been that a lot of therapists have adapted to using virtual sessions. And so, um, you know, even for somebody who maybe is, is still pretty timid in terms of around, in terms of social interactions or going someplace new, you know, virtual, a virtual session with a therapist may feel a lot more comfortable because then I'm in my own space. I'm in my own environment. You know, the only thing that's changing is the person across the screen. Mm-hmm. And so one change is a lot less intimidating <laughs> than 17 changes, mm-hmm. you know? And so to answer the question in like true therapist form is like, it depends Right. But so it might be a meeting. It might be one on one therapy. Quite honestly, it might be reaching out to a friend that's that's trusted, you know, or a family member that's trusted that you feel like 
if I can't do it alone, is there somebody in my life that will walk, that will walk alongside me, whether that's just looking up therapist profiles or looking up where an AA meeting is or going to a meeting, you know, like it's, I think that that answer is just so dependent on what that person, maybe why that person is drinking or using and then how comfortable do they feel now, 18 months later too. Golly, yeah. really yeah. 18 months. <laughs> We're not quite at 18 months yet, not but quite. we're not nearing quite. it. Not quite. But I pre-isolated. I saw it coming. I, I got rid of all <laughs> my social commitments in December. Yeah. it's. I mean, it's. It, I, I think it is just such an interesting place because I think there are uh, people who are struggling with addiction who've, who – you know, for lots of reasons, ended. I mean, all of us end up in those places because of lots of reasons. But I think there's some, some the article I was reading about sort of the growth of alcoholism, particularly among young women, um, and the the pressure of day drinking and coping, and then how rapid that expansion has become during the pandemic is sort of this. We're in this situational experience, is unlike anything we've experienced since 1918 that has really driven alcohol use in particular as a as a as a go-to coping mechanism and I just maybe we should spend a little maybe we could spend a little more time talking about talking with and thinking through those experiences because I think a lot of people found themselves uh, abusing substances who would have never ever imagined they'd end up there uh, I, probably most people who I mean, maybe I, I should say most people who are, have an addiction never imagine themselves there. Uh, but this one really, I think, caught some people off guard in a very intense way. Well, I'll say too, like one of the things that I always tell people to consider is when you're when you're looking at research or you're looking at statistics with anything that's around substance abuse and or recovery, right? You have to remember that uh, if it's self-reported, <laughs> number one, those answers are going to look a little different, mm. right? On how much they're using or when you're asking somebody to disclose that information, where are they at in that process, right? How willing are they to say, oh, oh, I, oh, yeah, of course I abuse alcohol, right? Like, okay, well, what's the definition of that? Or what are we categorizing as abuse? Or is somebody willing to say, yeah, I have six drinks a night, three nights a week? You know, like, are they willing to say that? Um, but also in recovery, there's such, there's such a large emphasis on anonymity that a lot of times the research that we're getting or studies that we're getting are, you know, such a small scale of people who are willing to talk about it or who want to talk about it. Um, because if they're not protecting their own sobriety, they, they feel like they're potentially protecting, you know, other people's sobriety. And so that information can be, can be skewed, not to say it's not accurate by any means, but it can be so skewed based on the fact that it's not just like a, you don't wear recovery or addiction on your face. You know, it's not, I line a hundred people up and I can look at them and say, oh yeah, 88, 88% struggling with alcohol. You know, like it's, it's such an internal struggle, battle, victory, wherever you're kind of at in this process that when it comes to research, right. The other part of this too is alcohol is legal. And so if we're looking just at things that say, oh, there's been this huge increase in, let's say young women purchasing alcohol, totally fair that can be a statistic that can be a little bit more attainable where you're probably not going to find a lot of people who are going to be like oh yeah i bought cocaine yeah put me down for that 
you know, like they don't, there's not a, there's not a great way to track that because it's something that's not legal. It's something that people aren't going to fess up to, you know, like they, they don't want to admit for so many reasons. Um, and so that's something to consider too, is yeah, we're, we're seeing an, we're seeing this increase in alcohol purchasing or use, but also we're seeing an increase in other substance purchasing and use. We're just not talking about it because it's not nearly as visible. Is that measured? Just out of curiosity, uh, is it generally when someone enters into like rec- like recovery and then like extrapolated backwards because that's when you can get honest data and feedback, or is what, it do we just do they rely on anonymous sampling or? It just depends on what kind of what you're looking at, right? So, like, is your information coming from a treatment facility that can easily protect? anonymity and just say, you know, between the ages of 18 to 25 year old women, you know, out of the hundred people that we took in this past month, you know, 45 of those are in that category. And then 15 of those alcohol with their drug of choice, right? Like that's a much easier kind of reportable statistic versus people versus taking like a, like a survey or doing statistics and having to go to people and get them to volunteer that information and hoping that they're being honest. Right. And so it's just something to consider kind of if you're looking at a study or you're looking at research, like where are they getting that information from? Where is that coming from? Some of the other data that's coming out recently is based on uh, the number of overdose calls, um, like hospital treatment, emergency personnel, um, hotline numbers, things like that. So uh, then they'll look back and kind of extrapolate some of the numbers out of that as well. But I mean, just like you asked, how do we get this data? It is very hard to get accurate data about something that people are either ashamed of um, or fearful of what would happen if somebody found out. Alcohol is pretty uh, widely socially acceptable. Um, Alcohol consumption to a level that you're not allowed to Uh, operate a vehicle. People might not want to disclose that information. Um, Most other substances are not legal right now. And so there's a lot of fear about disclosure of what the ramifications could be with it all. So I think that you get like kind of the most accurate, you probably have a greater likelihood of an accurate report of alcohol use than most other things because it is more socially acceptable, but that still doesn't make the reporting always accurate. You just have a greater chance of it being accurate. You may not have it. Oh, sorry. No, no, go ahead. Okay. You may not have um, any, I don't know if anyone anywhere has any answer on this. So I acknowledge that with the question. I know that Birmingham recently decriminalized uh, marijuana under a certain amount. Right. I honestly couldn't tell you because what I know is it's not that's not here. (laughs) And that's (laughs) what I function with. (laughs) Yeah, I I was just wondering if that had if that had had any ripples in your world. It hasn't it hasn't in mine. Yeah, I would say that whether things are legal or illegal, um, especially when it comes to marijuana, I don't think it's going to impact the usage that much. I will also say everybody that I 
work with, and I'm, I'm trying to make sure the validity of the statement before I put it out there, but everybody that I have worked with, and I want to say, or have worked with up to this point, if marijuana was part of the problem, it wasn't the whole problem. Mm-hmm. And so even if it is decriminalized or even if it, you know, even if that wasn't the problem, there's something else going on. And so I don't know, you know, but kind of going back, Lindsay, like you were saying, like the, you know, the calls to hotlines or the treatment of an overdose, right? Like all of those things require some sort of visibility still, Mm -hmm. right? And so we're having to rely on, on it getting to that stage. And it's not just that stage that's problematic, right? Like I can abuse and misuse without overdosing and it's still a problem, Mm. right? And it, and maybe nobody knows or nobody talks about it or it's not reported until I wind up in a hospital getting treatment for that or I wind up in a detox. I think that's exactly Mm -hmm. real. I think that's so important because the, the study that, that, uh, I, they triggered much of this for us was one I read on NPR and it was really tracking, um, alcohol disease, uh, alcohol, uh, disease of the liver. And, and that it increased 30% the rate of uh, alcohol liver disease, which includes cirrhosis and some other things. But the highest increase was in women under the age of 40. Mm-hmm. It was the, that was the high. So young women are, are, are have this, you know, are, are getting alcohol liver disease at a much higher rate than any other population, which generally was a middle-aged to late-aged kind of disease. Mm -hmm. And so what that, in response to what you said, I think that really points to how big this issue really is, because if if we're looking at that late state, I mean, and it talks about, that's not a drink or two a day, that's like a bottle of wine every day. That's Mm -hmm. five or six, you know, uh, gin and tonics every day, kind of of level of drinking. Um, And if that's the case, if that's grown 30%, then how much bigger has the just the use the, or the abuse of alcohol grown among that same population? I think that's what really is shocking to me. It's shocking and not shocking because I'm in that community. So, you know, I we, we know what it's like, you hmm. know, just that it is just the, the social thing to do. And, and that's the fact- long term, right? Like, yeah. the, it's not even this is happening right now. And so we're seeing the results of it. Right. Exactly. That's a 30% increase from impact. Yeah, that's right. It's, it took years ago to get to that place. So yeah. it's yeah, a yeah. lagging indicator. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And, and just like we mentioned before that there's, it's so many things that we're trying to cope with. Um, it, it's about naming the root of what's going on with that population. Besides it being socially acceptable, what happened to that nuanced group over the past year or two? And what happened was having increased emotional load of caring for families. More women had to leave their jobs during the pandemic. Um, Childcare at home. Uh, virtual school. Right. And so we start naming all of these contributing factors in which there weren't enough tools and education provided and support services to cope and address those things. And so I think that's where we as a community both need to make sure that we get people uh, connected to therapists and support services, but how do we as a community rally around individuals 
to help address some of the root of what's going on uh, so that there's not the same need to numb out and get away from those hard moments. Well, I think, I mean, I, and this is just my opinion, but I think that that answer looks a lot different now than it did say six months ago. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? Because with, with the isolation and kind of all these factors that you just named that absolutely contributed as those increased visibility and community decreased. Right. Yeah. And so where a lot of people kind of like a Zach situation, right. Could have intervened a lot earlier on potentially a lot of that gets missed because of course my friends aren't seeing me. We're all quarantined. Right? right. But I am drinking because I'm doing virtual school and I don't have my career or I'm, or I'm juggling a career and virtual school and isolation and, Oh, and my partner's at home 24 hours a day too. Yeah. Great. So any communication issues we already had that just got magnified. Right. And the person I'm fighting with certainly isn't offering accountability, right? Because we're not even talking to each other. So there's all these different pieces that as the contributing factors to potentially misuse or abuse are increasing, visibility and community are decreasing. And so now that we're starting to kind of come out of that and visibility and community have the ability to start kind of creeping in again and increasing, right? I think that your question, Lindsay, is totally more like more valid now Right. Or more of a not more of an issue, but more of a push now, because now community has the opportunity to step in, Mm. you know, where it didn't feel like that was an opportunity before. Because you think about things like churches, you know, how many of them either went virtual or closed or had major decrease in function, you know, like small groups weren't meeting or uh, we were all spaced out or the ability to maybe see somebody, right? If I have a mask on and all you can see are my eyes, we're missing half of the facial expression or, you know, majority of the body language right off, right off the bat. Right. And so now that these things are starting to open it back up, how do, not only how do we do it, but how do we do it in a way that isn't condemning, isn't shameful, is loving enough that's encouraging and says, yeah, mental health is important. Um, You know, and like, it's totally valid you know, like your struggles over the past six months, the past year, the past 20 years that haven't been addressed, all of them are still valid. And like, how do kind of, how do we love you alongside of that in a, in a not negative judgmental way, just because I got through the pandemic. Well, doesn't mean that you did, you know, like just cause it maybe wasn't a struggle for me. Doesn't mean it wasn't for somebody else. Okay. This is going to tie back into something else that you said. I promise. Lindsay's gearing up. When when Evan says, "I promise," this is going to come back to this. <laughs> I this hold is, on. This, this is, is going to be a food analogy. No, okay, it's it can be. I can shape it into one, but it is not. It's actually <laughs> a, a reasonable. This is a reasonable transition. Okay, so my question is thinking about as things open back up and as churches come back, you know, we want programs to be proactive where we can, right? The second you catch wind of a lagging indicator, it means we're already way behind, right? But I heard you say one of the big sentiments with college students is this is something I do in this season. And when I graduate, I'll stop. And I really think we have taken the entire country put them into a situation where they said, 
this is some habits that I have now. I'm even thinking this in my own head, right? This is some habits I have now. Once the pandemic is over, this is something that will change, right? Even all the way down to eating habits, you know, ordering takeout, using food as coping, not to self-incriminate, right? Uh, you know, substance use, any of the habits that we've developed. And so I wonder if we're going to hit that moment where we, where a lot of us start to realize pandemic's over. Like I'm done with college and lo and behold, I'm the same person I was yesterday just because things have changed. Well, and again, this is kind of in my, you know, in my experience, I'm one therapist in a private practice. So this is, I'm, I'm talking about maybe 40 or 50 people, you know, total that I'm, we're working with, but um, you know, that goes for positive and negative. Right. And so, yeah, there's, there's maybe these negative coping skills or increase in substance abuse. Right. But then also what you're doing is you're taking a lot of people who had a lot of time at home who maybe totally thrived in that. Right. And so they, started eating well because they're eating at home. They're not eating out. They're going on walks. They're, you know, they're, they're doing all these things that are really positive. And now they're transitioning back into a world where I'm going, I'm going into an office nine to five, picking up my kids from school who are wearing masks all day, who, you know, their social interaction looks different and, or my kids are acting out because they haven't been around other kids for the past year. You know, like there's all these factors. And now I'm back in a world where it's easier to pick up bad food or it's easier to not do this exercise habit, you know? And so I think you're kind of seeing it in maybe in both directions, you know, but, um, I would say, and this is, this is something I was thinking about earlier too, is kind of like, what role does the church play in that, you know, or, or how does the church get to kind of step into that? And one of the things that back when, back when we were working in ministry together, so this is now, also, you know, a six to 10 year problem that we've kind of been seeing. <laughs> we're getting is, old. Yeah. yeah. And by six to 10 year, I mean, just a casual six months because we're both still very young. Yes, um, we're both and it wasn't, that wasn't that long. Okay. One of us is, thank you very much. We're not much longer though. We're holding on to it. Um, but, um, you know, like the problem has always been, not always been a problem that I have seen has always been, how does the church become approachable? Right. Like, how do we make that community approachable, especially for college students um, kind of pre pandemic? But now, like you're saying, we're all kind of in this world where, well, college is almost over. So the season's almost over. Right. Well, now the pandemic's almost over or it feels like it's trickling out. You know, like now what? Because now I have all these habits that I don't love. Um, and so when and again, I'm going to recognize kind of my own limitations. I. Uh, work and live and function in the deep South where uh, there's a church just, I mean, as often as there's a dollar general. Um, And so there's, it's a lot more socially acceptable to maybe explore faith or be involved. And if you don't like one, you just go 10 feet and there's another one to try out, you know? And so um, I recognize that there's a lot more visibility of churches here, but it doesn't mean that they're all approachable and it doesn't mean that that community is always welcoming or helpful, right? And um, here we have like celebrate recovery meetings um, that function inside of churches. And so um, a celebrate recovery meeting is like, I'm, I'm gonna say an alternative to a 12 step meeting. Um, some of them use 12 step language. Some of them are more spiritual versus, um, 
well, AA or a 12-step program is spiritual. So I'm going to say they're more religious than spiritual. Um, a celebrate recovery is more religious than spirit, can be more religious than spiritual. Um, but that's not always going to be appealing to everybody, right? Because if somebody's not willing to say, I have a problem, or maybe they don't have a problem, maybe they've been misusing a substance, but it's not to the point of dependency or abuse, right? How do we kind of love them as a community? How do we, how do we love them back into a place that says, we see you, we hear that those habits aren't great. Let's walk alongside you, you know? And I, I don't, I don't know that I necessarily have like that answer. Um, or I would hopefully be super, super rich right now and just taking over churches. But, um, (laughs) I think, one of the, you know, one of the pieces is just like, how do we become more human? Right. And not to knock on churches, but like, how do we, how do we become kind of less churchy? You know, like, how do we look like the church or look like Jesus without maybe the stereotypes of what it, what it, what that has meant up to this point. Right. Yeah, I, and, I, I think you're absolutely like, it's something about part of it, I think is, sort of modernist society this idea that you got to have this central truth and you got to have rules and people will follow those rules because the central truth says those rules have to be followed but now life is so much more postmodern more 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 nuanced than that especially with young adults and so the church has held on to rules and and rules are neither good or bad they just are right i mean they can be used for both good and for bad and but but they've lost their humanity behind them a lot of in a, in a lot of church experiences that I've had that the rules become the predominant language of the church rather than reconciliation mm. or healing mm. or recovery, and so that makes it that hurdle is just that much bigger because it feels like I can't go and be part of this community until I'm not an alcoholic. Well, I got news for you, you that. First of all, that's not the thing you have to get over. And the second of it is you don't get over it, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you you deal with it. You learn how to cope with it and you learn how to overcome it. But you don't – it's it's not like you're just going to one day you're not going to be an alcoholic and now finally I can go to church. And it's it's the same kind of idea that that if I oh, – I'm just going to drink for the next four years of my life and then I'll stop drinking. You know, and it's – it's the, every decision that we make as a, as a church to, to embody our faith – has lasting impact in people's lives. And I think you, you, you point to something that's really important is how do you, um, the place for recovery is in community and the, the church community has, the, the faith community has a really rich place in that if we can find ways to be more open and understanding and empathetic with people who are experiencing uh, addiction. And I, as you were saying that, I was thinking about, I, I have a client who we were just talking about this yesterday where she, um, she was involved in a faith community. It was, it ended up being like a pretty consuming community in a positive way for a while during her freshman and sophomore years. Um, and then kind of, kind of this, uh, I don't know, this like argument blow up kind of whatever you want to call it, which caused her to then have kind of a spiritual crisis because the only experience that she had had with religion was in the context of college. Like she came to she came to college, not a Christian and, and found it there learned it there. Um, and she's, she's now a senior. So now she's in this place of, I'm in this season, kind of like we were talking about, right? Just four years. And then, and then I move on to the next season. So she's in this world. And she was saying to me yesterday, like, I don't know what to do in terms of, I know what religion has been. I know the pieces I've liked. 
I know I've liked Jesus, but I have not liked the church, you know, and I'm kind of grappling with all these different pieces. And, um, and she has the self-awareness to say that she, she functions in like black and white, right? I'm either a hundred percent bought in. Jesus is the center of my life. I'm living for him. My morals are based on the Bible. You know, I have all of these just very crisp ideas of what the church has taught me, or I can go out and drink with my friends. Mm-hmm. And in reality, we're saying like, okay, but like, what if you did both? You know, like, what if you, what if you did go out and drink? I'm going to say socially, casually, in a healthy way, right? And like, still loved Jesus. You know, like, one of those two things could happen simultaneously. Um, and and one of the things that came out of her night's conversation is she was saying that she felt really overwhelmed about walking back into a church, knowing that potentially that church didn't like alcohol or didn't, wasn't okay with her drinking, but she wasn't willing to give up that social piece with her friends who weren't religious um, and kind of struggling. And, and the piece that came out of it was instead of jumping into that world again, right. Instead of both feet forward, your Sundays and Wednesdays, and you know, you're a hundred percent invested. What if instead you just started hanging out with your friends again, who you felt looked like Jesus right? Like who were just kind of embodying these characteristics that you enjoyed. And there wasn't this pressure to be Jesus or be a massive sinner. You know, like what if, what if we just took some baby steps and started being around people that you felt like had these characteristics that you wanted, that you wanted to have too, or had these habits that you liked, or were just those people that I'm going to say like a less intimidating and more inviting you know, because, um, and it's so funny, I actually was talking about Evan in this yesterday with her, um, because what I said to her was, you know, when I, when I was kind of making my way back into the church life, I didn't walk into a church and say, hey, count me in, I'd like to get baptized, also everything I do is now for Jesus, um, and I will give up anything that you guys say to make it work, <laughs> right? What happened was I stumbled onto uh, an ultimate Frisbee field, and this guy walked up to me and was like, Hey, what's up? You know, and was just this presence of like love and welcoming and Hey, come hang out with our friends. And it's, it's actually, I don't even know if Evan would remember this, but it was uh, this like big joke. I ran into him. I was with another friend who wasn't a Christian who wasn't involved. I ran into Evan and another guy who worked in the campus ministry Lee that we were talking about earlier um, at the UA rec pool. Um, during the summer and we were like floating on this lazy river and he's just again so welcoming right just this I mean like just this picture of Jesus right of like hey how are you I'm intentional I remembered your name I remembered these facts about you I'm meeting you where you're at and I didn't at this time I don't think I knew that Evan worked at a campus ministry and I certainly didn't know that his friend did and I conservatively dropped like seven f-bombs in front of them like was just having conversation and was just like, ah, like laughing about it, not thinking a thing about it. And I don't know, maybe an hour later, his friend was like, well, Hey, you know, we're all hanging out over the summer. We work at this campus ministry. Why don't you come hang out? And immediately I was like, oh, I have blown it. Like they are trying to help me find Jesus because I clearly need it. Right. And they were, but it wasn't this, it wasn't this, I'm going to force it down your throat and I'm, and now you're not welcome here because you don't look like me or 
you don't look the way that a church person looks, right? Instead, it was just that to me is much more approachable, right? I have a friend who's awesome. He's fun to hang out with. He's super loving. He's a good time. He likes to eat tacos. I like to eat tacos, right? Like we can do life alongside of each other and it's not intimidating, right? And so as a therapist, we're trained to be empathetic, sympathetic, to do this, to do life alongside people. But the expectation is not that me and my husband, who is not a therapist at all, right? Like, but for me, my husband and everybody around me to all now be trained therapists and to, to walk through mental health with people or to work through breaking bad habits with people. It's just, what if we just all looked, you know, like we were just trying to shine a little bit of Jesus and invite people to just have like a healthier lifestyle, whether that's in or outside of a church building. I think that's a great way for us to kind of pause this really rich conversation because I think it leaves us with a really a call to action for, for all of us is how, how, do, how can we better embody the kind of people we want to experience in the world? Because it's, it's, not, just, it's not just about your Christian faith. It's, just, it's about, you know, we, we, I think a lot of us sit back. I'll speak for myself. I throw stones at the way the church behaves and the rules but and and i get mad at the way um politicians and leaders treat other people but the reality is it's about i've got to be part of the solution i can't just look and say this is bad i need to start seeing ways in which i can just be present with people and offer that kind of relationship where they can be themselves where they can be seen and not judged where they can be encouraged and not uh, not pushed away. And, and so I think your point is just really right on for where we are. Um, and the challenge that you've given us to, to embody that kind of way of being with people, uh, at least in the coming week and see, see if there are ways in which God can use us to, to be an Evan for as Evan was for (laughs) you, we can be an, an Evan for someone else, a place just to make a connection. As in most weeks, I request a easier challenge that I can do. From, um, <laughs> Wayland, was that Wayland? It was. Oh, Wayland's my favorite little pup. But I, I would say kind of just kind of to piggyback off what you were saying to Michael and like kind of bring it full circle back to the substance abuse, right? The same way that there isn't an expectation for us to have it all figured out or as a church community to like always look like Jesus all the time, 100%, you know, never mess up but instead just kind of walk alongside somebody. If you, if either you are struggling with substance use, substance misuse, substance abuse, maybe whatever you feel (laughs) the most comfortable label wise, right? If you're the person struggling or you know somebody who is struggling, right? You don't have to have the answers. That's the beauty of a fellowship that's 12 step like AA or NA, or that's the beauty of having people around who are, therapists or counselors or kind of whatever label you want to put on that too, right? Like there are people who are going to maybe be experts or have the resources. The expectation is not that everybody has that all the time, but just to be that person that says, I'll walk alongside this with you and figure it out, right? Like I can Google (laughs) therapists in Tuscaloosa or I can Google AA meeting. You know what I mean? Like I don't have to have all of the answers Right. As the person struggling mm-hmm. or as the person who's walking alongside somebody struggling, I just have to like love them, meet them where they're at, be present, and then 
kind of help hand off to somebody who does have the answers. The pressure's not on you, you know, as a, as a non-mental health professional or as somebody who doesn't live a sober lifestyle because you don't, you know, because you're not struggling or that's, you know, addiction isn't a thing for you. That's okay. There's not shame in not having the answers. It's just being able to, I mean, literally being able to Google and meet somebody where that's they're right. at and say, I'll go to therapy with you, right? Mm-hmm. Like I'll drive you to your appointment or I'll drive you to a meeting or whatever, you know, like that's, that's all it that's all it has to look like. It doesn't I'll have get togethers and fun that don't revolve around alcohol. I mean, there's, there's right. lots of ways in which we can be fully present with people and not have the answers to fix the problems because that's, that's not right. our, that's not the, that's not our responsibility as friends uh, and as, as people. Cause that's so, I mean, in, in my office, that's so often what I hear, not from necessarily the people, well, the people who are maybe struggling with the substance disorder, right. Is, well, I don't know what I'm going to do because my entire life has now revolved around activities that include alcohol. There's nothing to do in Tuscaloosa that doesn't. Right. And I'm like, Hey, walking doesn't, in, doesn't have to involve alcohol, right? Like taking a lap around downtown doesn't have to involve alcohol. Um, hanging out with friends who are sober, you know, or who are positive doesn't have to include that, you know, which can feel like a big, can feel like a, a big hurdle to overcome when that's been your community Right. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. then for people who aren't the ones struggling, they're saying that I don't have all the answers. I don't know what to do. My friend's really struggling. And a lot of times what I have to say is like, girlfriend, you don't have to. No one's asked that of you. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like you're doing the only thing that you need to do by saying to me, I don't know what to do. Cool. I have the answers. Right. It's why you pay me. And it's why I went to school for an extended period of time. I'll have the answer. You know what I mean? Like I'm just giving you information to, to take back to your friend. That's all you have to do is just ask. That's well, I just want to say uh, it's been great, great to get to meet you and to mm-hmm. share this time with you. Thank you so much for everything that you've brought to light. A lot of us, a lot of meat for us to chew on in all of this and um, a good challenge too to, to be more like Evan this week. Be present and eat tacos. I think that's what you told me. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, that's, and play you know, some ultimate frisbee. Yeah. That's right. That's right. That's right. You don't want to see me out on the field after a year of being inside. <laughs> <laughs> but, we're, no. we're so grateful for you and uh, the work you do and the wisdom you have. And so thank you for joining us today. Thank you guys so much for having me. This is so much fun. I love you. I love you. We miss you. Oh, I miss you guys. We'll get you over to Georgia eventually. I've already been texting your wife about coming <laughs> there. Hang out in your pool. Don't even. Don't worry about it when you come home later. If I'm uh, outside, don't worry about it. L- yeah, Lee lives in it, so you're good. <laughs> perfect oh well thanks again thanks everyone for listening uh any any anything you wanted to share any closing thoughts any words of wisdom career before we sign off um i will say you did ask me to consider what my third favorite tattoo was um and i put a lot of thought into this today um the answer varies day to day um but i'm gonna say that my third favorite is uh i have uh, I have a portrait of a lot of my animals, but I have a portrait of my cat um, who was found on the streets of Walmart in Tuscaloosa. Um, but she is wearing a bandana and it has her name on it. And it says thug life times nine. 
underneath of it. And today, that's going to be my third favorite tattoo for today. Thank you so much for thoughtfully answering my question. So welcome. It's beautiful. Uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks again to Justin Patton uh, for producing this episode and doing the music. And another special thanks to Greer. Greer, thanks. Uh, let's say there's somebody who's listening who wants to get in touch. Uh, do you have an email for your practice or um, plug anything? This is your time website. Yeah, my uh, unfortunately, my website is super obnoxious. It's agape, A G A P E, therapy, Tuscaloosa.com. Obviously, you can link it on it. our socials. So, you'll- yeah, didn't think about it when I got it. But um, also, I was going to say, if you're interested in therapy, you can go check out psychologytoday.com and uh, you can filter by your zip code, your city. And then there are like 10 different filters you can put on if you want like a male or female therapist, someone who's a Christian, someone who takes certain insurance. Um, it's super, super easy. You can do it from your computer or your phone. It's super user-friendly, um, but that's a great place to start if you're looking for a therapist in your area. Perfect. Well, thanks again to Greer. Thanks again to Justin. And thanks again to you for listening. That's right. We hope that wherever you are, this soothing moment gives you a pause, something to laugh and think about, something for your co-hosts to put both of their heads in their hands and shamefully look at you when you try and be thoughtful and connect with the listener. Thanks again for listening. I'm going to keep dragging this out while they keep waving their fingers in a circle. (laughs) This is great. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next episode. (laughs) 